Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. When the members of the Sydney Turf Club Committee of the mid-1950s announced the creation of their new autumn two-year-old race, they would never have imagined the impact it would have on the racing and breeding industries down through the years. It was Mrs George Ryder, wife of the then chairman of the Sydney Turf Club, who suggested the Golden Slipper as a likely name. 64 years on, the Slipper is the world's richest two-year-old event. Owners of Golden Slipper winning cults just sit back and wait for the offers to come from stud syndicates. Owners of stallions who sire a slipper winner get ready to take the bookings. Trainers lucky enough to win one enjoy a profile boost while there isn't a jockey in the country who wouldn't give his eye tooth to ride a slipper winner. Right from the beginning in 1957, the slipper stamped itself as a race for great horses when Todman was the runaway winner. In the years to follow, champion cults like Vane and Luskin Star added to its reputation. Saturday, March 20 is the much-anticipated date for the Longines Golden Slipper, carrying a purse of $3.5 million. We've seen some brilliant youngsters in the lead-up races, many of them looking like they've been here before. The Slipper will be supported by the George Ryder, the Ranvet, the Galaxy, and the Rose Hill Guineas. All Group 1s on a spectacular program. Saturday, March 20, for the 65th running of the Golden Slipper. More than halfway through the current racing season, we have the unprecedented situation where Jamie Carr and Jessica Eaton are on top of the jockeys' ladders in Melbourne and Adelaide, respectively. While in Sydney, Rachel King is in third place, behind James MacDonald and Tommy Berry. This is a source of great satisfaction to people like Pam O'Neill, who almost single-handedly won Australian girls the right to ride against the men. But another trailblazer who can take much of the credit for the rise of female jockeys is Beverly Buckingham, whose deeds in Tasmanian racing through the 80s and 90s captured media attention all over the world. Bev Buckingham was the first female jockey to ride a winner against the men on Tasmanian soil. In just her second season of race riding in 81-82, she became the first female jockey in the world to win a state premiership. In riding a record 108.5 winners in the 94-95 season, she became the first jockey to top the century in Tasmania, the second of her three premierships. She was the first woman to ride in a Caulfield Cup. She rode winners in Japan and on many Australian tracks. Such was her profile in the early 1980s that she was flown to Sydney to make a guest appearance on the Nine Network's Mike Walsh Show. She was also the inspiration for Ron Shegog's popular country song, Queen of the Turf. She rode a career total of 906 winners and was well on the way to 1,000 when in the 98-99 season 
a freakish fall at Hobart's Elwick track ended her career in the most heartbreaking way. Bev trained horses for a short time in Victoria before moving to Sydney, where she has spent the last nine years with her daughter Tara. I tracked her down a week ago, and I've got her on the line. Ladies and gentlemen, a member of Australian Racing Royalty, Beverly Buckingham. Bev, I am so thrilled to talk to you again, I'm almost bursting. It was lovely to chat to you again, John. Been a long time. Oh, it has, it really has. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what put me on your trail. I saw a lovely Twitter photo of you with star thoroughbreds Denise Martin at the Mowbray races in Launceston, and that prompted me to send out the search party. Now, you haven't lived in Tassie for close to 20 years, Mm -hmm. but I hear you're thinking about a return to the Apple Isle. Yes, um, definitely moving back. Tara and I are going to be moving back within a few months. It's been too long. I I miss home. Mm. That's that's the long short of it. (laughs) Yeah, well, you spent the best part of your life there. I know you love the place. You told me the other day you love getting in your car and driving around Tasmania. Yes, I, I drove down. I, I took the Spirit of Tasmania over, and um, and it was just wonderful just driving back in Tassie again. Uh, just seemed like all my worries, concerns, all just floated away. It's like um, last twenty years had disappeared. It's it just mm. lovely to be back. Mm. Where will you settle? Um, probably the Devonport area. Um, I, I love that area. I, I love all of Tassie, but with Devonport, um, you're close to the sea. Beaches, and it's not far to anywhere. It only takes two, two and a half hours to get to Hobart, so, mm. and it's an easy drive. Yeah. An hour from London, and yeah. Following your long and very arduous rehabilitation, you moved mm-hmm. with your parents to Benalla in Victoria, where you took yes. out a trainer's licence and you gave it a quick little crack, and you won yes. a number of races, but you yes, never really settled into horse training, Beff. No, it was that was a, when I was riding. That was always going to be the plan. I was going to ride till my, in the late thirties, retire, have a baby, go on holiday overseas six months, come back and start training. And my dad and I were going to always do it together. Mm. And then after I broke my neck, I mean, it changed. Yeah. Um, when I was in Benalla, I started training. It got more difficult because Dad had a stroke. Mm. And he wasn't able to help, so it was basically sort of left to me, and I and I'm disabled, mm. and I didn't find the training side of things hard. I mean, the horses, the actual planning and, and feeding and all that, the part with staff, as every trainer knows, that is mm. the actual hardest part: getting track work riders, having capable staff to work, and and all staff not turning up. Mm. And I was finding, being that that I was putting myself in situations where it was actually dangerous to my health, doing things I shouldn't be doing. And I had quite a few nasty little accidents. And um, mm. and then the GFC hit and, and I made a decision to quit. And it really was the best decision for me. The last time I saw you was on that Benalla property and we were there with a sky camera crew to do a story on your marvellous recovery from what was initially diagnosed as incomplete quadriplegia. It was four years after the accident 
and mm-hmm. you'd already performed one miracle because your daughter Tara was then two years old. I can still see her. She's now 20. Yes. Yeah, I, Tara has been the absolute light of my life. She, I, She's a wonderful, wonderful girl. Um, she's grown up to her. I mean, everybody I know in my past and my racing, and you, John, you knew me as Bev, you know, the jockey. Tara's mm. only known me as Bev, the mum. To her, my disability is, is nothing. I mean, she, and, I mean she, she gives me hell. She teases me. <laughs> There's been times I've tripped and fallen, and she'll say, oh, mum, what are you doing? Yeah, she keeps me grounded mm. um, and keeps me laughing, which is, I think, is the most important thing to living, mm. being able to laugh and be happy. Bev, the star of that TV story I was talking about in mm-hmm. Nella was yes. a lovable half Clydesdale mare called Dolly. Yes. And you absolutely shocked me and my camera crew <laughs> when you stood on a little stepladder and you climbed onto Dolly's back and off you went out onto a little exercise track on the property mm-hmm. and you actually rose to the trot. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah. Darling, she, she was half Clyde and she was a lovely little mare. Um, I can ride. Um, I don't ride mainly because um, riding is not like it used to be. I feel like I'm sitting on top of the horse instead of being a part of the horse. Mm. So it's not enjoyable like it was. But yeah, I can ride and, and Dolly was wonderful. Yeah, she's still alive, by the way, John. Yeah. Um, yeah, oh, she's in her 30s. We had some... A, a lovely lady and her daughter dropped in um, quite a few years later after I did the interview with you, mm-hmm. and um, and they were telling they were just they were fans of mine, and they were so lovely. And, and her daughter mm-hmm. uh, Madison had had a lot of problems over the years with you know medical issues, and, and they were saying how they were hoping to mm-hmm. um, find a horse which would be quiet enough that Madison could get attached to, and and basically you know. Be happy again. Anyway, Mum and I sort mm. of caught eyes over the table, and mm. I nodded. And Mum said, "Would you like Dolly?" And um, they yeah. both thought we were joking. And anyway, Dolly, um, we gave Dolly to Madison and her mum soon. Mm. And and uh, Dolly has lived a life of absolute luxury. She's still alive. She's in her thirties. And and Madison started going to. Uh, pony club and made friends and yeah, they credit Dolly and for getting her, helping her with her medical problems. Oh, so I'm, I'm really yeah, that, that's just a wonderful story. Mm. You know, and, I'm, and we're friends to this day. <laughs> well, Bev, back then, Dolly bolstered your confidence to the degree that you took it a step too far <laughs> later on. You talked your father into letting you jump on a yearling. Whatever mm. possessed you to do that? <laughs> uh, that's me. I'm always trying to push myself to do more than what I should. Mm. Um, I got myself quite fit. I was actually riding a few horses, you know, with a stock saddle and then... Dad bought um, the full brother to my Sienna at the yearling sales, mm. and uh, he was breaking him in, and I was watching him, and he looked, because 
I'd broken in my CF and um, unfortunately I forgot to ride in a race, but mm. I knew as a year on that she was something special and I was wondering whether her full brother was going to be any good and I was convinced Dad to let me jump on a yearling which he was breaking in. Mm. I thought it'd be fine with the stock saddle on. Stupid me. Um, I get on, I go for a trot. Next thing he shies and he pig roots and he just throws me. Yeah. And I land on the ground, got up and just started crying. And um, <laughs> realised, yeah, and realised, this is stupid. Yeah. I, I can't do this. I'm a quadriplegic. <laughs> you, yeah, you don't yeah. put yourself in one of those situations where it's dangerous, mm. which is why, yeah. So that was stupid. <laughs> yeah, Bev, that was the, the stubborn streak that persisted mm. right throughout your wonderful riding career. <laughs> yes, I'd agree. But that was it. That was the swan song. You haven't ridden since. No, no, I haven't. Mm. I can, but I don't. You know, but I may do again. <laughs> if, I get a quiet, if I get a quiet enough horse, and, uh, yeah, I might do it again. Right. Uh, I, I miss horses so much, yeah. Yeah. Can't we put Dolly back into work? She's only 38. <laughs> I think Dolly's earned her retirement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, Bev, your story has been very well documented in a 2003 biography called Beating the Odds, and okay. you'll see a copy of that book pop up every now and again on eBay. Yeah. And uh, flicking through the pages again last week, I'm reminded that you're a pom. You were born yes. <laughs> in a little place called Dis, D-I-S-S, on the yes. Suffolk-Norfolk border, and you were yes. just two years old when mm-hmm. you came to Australia with mum and dad. You were an only child. Yes. Um, yeah, mum and dad. Um, dad was a bricklayer, and um, work was drying up in England at the time, and they saw an ad in the paper for Australia. The Australian government wanted... Come to Australia, and Mum and Dad moved as part of the two pound pom, lot mm. which came over, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, mm. moved to a little suburb house in WA, and um, in Perth, so Aubrey, Perth, I think it was, mm. and um, it wasn't long after that Mum hated being in the suburbs, and Dad, Dad earned a fair bit of money quite quickly, and we bought a little seven acre property. Just outside of Perth, um, with and Dad bought a X racehorse. Yeah, um, yeah. He he had always grown up. He was they were he was very poor as a, when he was a child, and um, mm. he'd always wanted his own horse. And when they got this seven acres, Dad bought a X racehorse. Mm. And uh, Dad, being the sportsman he was, because he used to play soccer all the time, mm. he um, taught himself to ride, and he. Um, Used to go off on the property and used to take me to school on horseback when mm. I was in grade one. Goodness me. And, um, yeah. yeah. And then um, it was when I was about, I think, not long after that, um, they decided to, they were going to move to Queensland. Mm. And so they uh, got the caravan and the station wagon and trekked across Australia and thought they'd check out Tassie on the way because they'd heard how beautiful it was. And they went to Tassie and never left. Mm. That's how this started. And um, they bought another property um, in 1973, I think it was, at the back of Mount Wellington, in um, a place called Collinsvale. And Dad bought a, another thoroughbred mare uh, to ride, and 
he didn't know that she was in foal. Um, and when she had a foal, it was the thoroughbred foal, and Dave's thinking, what do I do? I've got this racehorse on my hands. Mm. So he decided he'd go around chatting to trainers and get their opinion, and he met with Walter McShane, who was a leading trainer down there at the time, mm. and Walter said to Dad, why don't you train it yourself, Ted? And that was sort of the start of that. And Dad thought, yeah, what? I might do that. Mm. So we moved again to a flatter property because the one we had was Kelly. Mm. We moved to Old Beach and Dad then bought, Mum and Dad bought another thoroughbred mare, um, a New Zealand man. Dad did his research of breeding and teaching himself and breeding. Terragam was her name. Terragam, yes. Yeah. Um, who was by Gigantic. Mm. No, no, hang on. Yeah, I think she was by Gigantic, mm. and she had a three-week-old foal foot, mm. who ended up being Dad's first racehorse called, and he named him Brigadoon Boy. Yeah. He ended up winning 16 races. Oh, he did and a up, terrific yeah. job. Well, he this, was a, yeah, good, good horse. This was around 1978, Bev, and by that time he'd accepted the manager's job at a thoroughbred stud at yeah. Wesley Vale, owned by Dr yeah. Michael Wilson, and yes. the resident stallion on that property was a Caulfield Cup winner called Beer Street, yes. who had a reputation as a most unpleasant horse. But little yes. Bev, little Bev could do anything <laughs> with him. Uh, it was he would he'd been standing at stud in Victoria, and the word was that they couldn't control him to stand him over mares. They just just let him on with the brood mares in the paddock. And when he came back to Tassie, um, they, say, they wanted the manager, Dad. And anyway, Dr. Wilson told my dad, because I was 13, I think, 13 or 14. Hang on, what? No, I was 13, yes. Mm. And um, Dr. Wilson said to Dad, don't let Bev near him, he'll kill her. <laughs> um, yeah, and <laughs> I well, I'm not going to listen to that, am I? We used to feed him every night. He had his own yard and his own stable. I used to go in every night and feed him. His nickname was Boozer. He was the loveliest horse. Mm. And I think it was around about a month after he came back from Victoria that he got Dr. and Mrs. Wilson down from the house, down to where we were, and mm. they came down and saw me riding him around bareback. without a halter or a lead rope or anything on him in the paddock. Goodness me. Yeah. yeah he, he, was a, he was a lovely horse. He just needed kindness and understanding, mm. as yeah. horses do. Needed a little bit of your communication skills. Yeah. <laughs> You watched the 1979 Melbourne Cup telecast with your parents. That was the cup won by Hyperno. And this mm-hmm. was the day you formed an indelible impression of the talents of Harry White. And he oh. became the jockey you most wanted to base your style on. Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, Harry, his style, second none, the quiet style of riding, how horses just travelled for him. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Long and short, yes. He, he, he's been my favourite jockey. Yes, mm. of course. You were champing at the bit to ride in races, mm-hmm. but your dad wisely yeah. held you back. It seemed cruel at the time, but it paid off later. Now, you had your final trial ride in October 1980, weeks after Alison Anderson had become the first girl to ride mm-hmm. against the men in Tasmania. But Bev, look back 40 years, Tasmanian trainers wanted nothing to do with female jockeys, did they? No, they didn't. Um, 
when I started, as, as you just said, Alison was the first. I was the second. Um, Kimmy Dixon, who was Kimmy Simpson at the time, was the third. I was apprenticed to my dad. Um, Kimmy Simpson was apprenticed to her dad. And we actually were the ones who I rode a winner about a week before Kimmy did. Mm. So I was the first. Kimmy was the second. Yeah. Um, and we really started riding quite a few winners. Mm. Uh, and being tr- apprenticed to our dads, we got we got the rides because the owners knew us, and, and I think that's that helped a lot. Um, and but it, look, it didn't take long for trainers to start taking notice of the two of us because if we're winning on horses which were paying twenty, thirty, forty to one on the on the tote. Mm. What are we going to do on horses which which they had an opinion of? So mm. the, if trainers started putting both of us on and mm. um, on on horses which didn't have a chance, we would improve them. Mm. So they so would they keep us on? Mm. Um, quite a few trainers didn't. Um, there was a lot of um, uh, how can I say this politely? Um, a lot of negativity. Yeah. And I used to. I mean, all of us girls back then, we'd come in after a race and we'd hear. Hear, the, hear these men on the side saying, no, go back to the kitchen. You shouldn't be out there. What are you doing, girl? Oh. It, it was just normal. It, it was constant. Mm. And we all had to just learn to mm. get have a tough skin and turn a blind eye to it. I mean, mm. what could we do? All, we, all, we, all of us girls, it was tough. Mm. Um, I don't think I really realised how tough it was until I got older. I mean, back then, that was mm. just normal. Um, and it wasn't just the trainers. Jockeys used to... Yeah, I mean, sexist remarks constantly. Yeah, really? It was just, yeah, that was just normal. Mm. <laughs> Max Baker was the Harry White of Tasmania in that era. Max won yes. nine Tasmanian premierships. He must have mm-hmm. found it unnerving in the 81-82 season when this female jockey started snapping at his heels right through the season and you came into the last day with a handy lead. But Max yes. had some good rides, and uh, you weren't overly <laughs> confident. No, Max had to basically ride seven winners to beat me, and um, I was really, really nervous. Yeah, I mean, I think he won the first, and I think he ran second in the second race. And um, Annie Clancy and I, we just jumped and hugged each other. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it was pretty. It was. An amazing! It was amazing. I I didn't couldn't believe that I won the premiership. No, but Bev, it was your second season. Yes, your second season <laughs> as an apprentice jockey. It was just amazing. Yes, um, it, it was. Uh, I, I outrode my claim through that season. These um, mm. back then, Launceston and Hobart were counted as city wins. Mm. And so I outrode my claim very quickly because I ran second my first season of riding in the Apprentices Premiership. Mm. So and um, yeah, I, it was it was an amazing season. I had a, had quite a few trainers who were putting me on their horses and were sticking by me. And naturally, I rode winners for Dad. Mm. I, it it was it was nerve wracking and. And I didn't realize, I think I was so young at the time too, I didn't really realize what a big deal it was because mm. I was only 17. Yeah. Um, and I had the press following me around so much for the last four months and it got it got so bad in the last that month. That got to you a bit, didn't it? 
it, it, a lot. Because I'd be in the mounting yard, there'd be a camera in my face. I'd be in the barriers, and there's a camera zooming in on me on every race. Mm. They were there everywhere, and it, and it got so much that um, Dad, who was my boss, um, actually had to go to Bruce Forsman, who was the chief steward, and say, look, we've got to stop these cameras from being... It, it, it's messing with Beth's head. Mm. And, yeah, and so Bruce Forsman had a word with the media and asked them to not be in the mountain yard and not following me around as close and that that helped a lot. I started riding winners again because it, it got to me mm. and I couldn't stop riding winners for a few weeks. <laughs> mm. Well, earlier yeah. than that, you were surprised and excited to get a call from the producers <laughs> of the famous television program hosted by Mike Walsh out of the yes. Willoughby Studios in Sydney. They shouted mm-hmm. you an air ticket from Tassie to Sydney they whisked you to the Willoughby Studios and introduced the Tasmanian Whiz Kid to the whole <laughs> of Australia. Now, Bev, I didn't see it live, but I have seen a replay of that interview. You seem very calm. I was—I might have seemed calm. I was nervous. I could barely—I could barely talk. Didn't I mean, show. I was meeting my. my mm. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. That that was um. Amazing, yes, that was really, really amazing. Um, it, it was funny. Mike asked me a question at the end of the end of the interview, and um, he he said to me, he said, "So, Bev, you're riding on Saturday?" I said, "Yes." He said, um, "Which race are you in?" I said, "Oh, all of them." All of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he then he turns to the camera, and he said, "Well, look, we're not allowed to ask jockeys for tips, but I can ask." Bev, what's your favourite horse you know, that you're riding, riding um, Mowbray on, on Saturday? Mm. My mind went a blank, John. I'm, I'm, I'm so nervous. I couldn't remember a single horse I'm riding. I'm thinking, oh, mm. no, oh, no. Then uh, uh. suddenly one came to me. Ruth McLeod, he's a lovely horse. <laughs> yeah. Out of eight rides, I could remember one. Isn't that amazing? Did he win? <laughs> On the Monday after the races, yeah. on the on the, on the show, Mike come, Mike comes to the camera and said, "Oh, we had a lovely girl in last week, and here she is, Beverly Buckingham. What a pretty little thing she is." We asked her what her favorite what her favorite horse was. We're not allowed to ask for tips. Anyway, she told us Red McLeod. Yeah, it won at four to one, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, great! <laughs> How was that for luck? Fantastic. Now, yes, Bev, I did win on it, yeah. There was a lovely little piece in Murray Mottram's book on your life about yes. a horse called Stormcastle. Now, uh, what, what thought comes into your mind when I mention Stormcastle's name? Manicato. Yeah. <laughs> you, yes. You were on your way to the barrier for, for a race in Tasmania mm-hmm. and you could hear a broadcast coming over the amplification system yes. of Manicato winning a big race in Melbourne. Yes, I, I was rode. I was, I think, it's nineteen eighty one. Alan Stubbs, who was one of the bigger trainers in Tasmania, had just started putting me on a few horses. I'd ridden a, another horse for him a few weeks before, an old galloper called Trevinson, which was an old hurdler, mm. and I'd flown home and run second, which, and the horse had been doing no good. And so Alan put me on his old. Old Galloper Storm Castle had been a handy old Galloper in the past, but hadn't been doing anything. And um, this was a, and I rode him at Elwick in a 1400 metre race. It was a bog track, and 
And I was pulling out on the track. I was eight years old, seven, eight years old. And um, I was listening to Manicato win because Manicato was my favourite. Kingston Town close followed, but Manicato I adored. Mm. And I heard him winning over the, over the broadcast. And I, I said to old Storm, I said, you know what, Storm? You could beat Manicato if you raced against him. And he just won in Melbourne. So what do we do here? Mm. Anyway, I ended up winning my 14 lengths. <laughs> Goodness me. Yeah. yeah, at any old price. It was. And then Alan, after that, he put me on a, a really good old sprinter of, his, sprinter of his called Endor, who had been top-class sprinter, mm. um, who he was eight or nine. Mm. He hadn't been performing. I ended up winning Tamar shorts on him. And mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's when the trainers really started to take notice of the yep. girls. They start, yeah, if we can win on the horses, and get them to start performing again, what are we going to do with them better ones? Yeah. Now, under that kind of pressure and that kind of expectation, something had to give. Your yes. weight was starting to creep up. <laughs> Next thing, you're yep. taking Lasix to reduce the fluid. You're taking mm-hmm. Duramine to suppress yeah. the appetite. And mm-hmm. when the races were over on a Saturday night, you'd start three days on junk food and then come Wednesday, you'd start on the pills again. It's a horrible merry-go-round. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, I took basics all, all through my career. Um, it, it, it just take off those last few kilos. Um, I'm not short. I'm five foot six. So, hmm. and I was also very strong, as everyone knows. Muscle weighs heavier than fat, and and so I always had a weight problem. That was just a constant through my career. Mm. Um, Lasix just took off those last couple of kilos, and I mean I handle it. That's how it is. I mean mm. weights are weights are higher now, um, which which would have been handy back then. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean my normal walking around weight would be around about sixty two. That would be normal for me. Goodness but me. I had to ride at fifty one back then. Yeah, yeah. Bev, one day you were on your way to Elwick Races in your Mazda 626 when you blacked out with disastrous yes. results. Yes. Um, I, yeah, I've been wasting too hard. Um, and I, I, ha- I had a nasty accident and um, it hit the gravel and went flying across the road and yeah, got knocked out. And, um, yeah, oh. I was lucky. I, as I went flying across the road, I thought I was dead. I just took my hands off the wheel and thought, I'm dead. And I think that probably yeah. saved my life because I was relaxed. Because mm. <laughs> even the car was a wreck. Um, uh, so, yeah, just, things happen, don't they? I mean, there's been many times during my life. I mean, I look back and accidents where I'm, like, I'm lucky to be here. Here's a more pleasant memory. You loved mm-hmm. a horse called X Directory. Part-owned yeah. and trained by your father, you rode mm-hmm. this horse in every one of his 32 starts. Mm-hmm. Nine wins, seven seconds, four thirds, a Devonport Cup, second in a Launceston Cup, and mm-hmm. later he won a Group 3, the Queen's Cup at Elwick. Yeah. And you got a letter from, appropriately, Buckingham Palace. I yeah. bet you've produced that a few times at dinner parties. Uh. Yeah, that was lovely. Um, I was first female jockey to win, win the Queen's Cup. Um, that was, you know, I'm very proud of that. There's, 
Yeah. And yeah. signed by um, signed by Elizabeth R. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Lovely. That horse was was pretty special too. Mm. I, I, I credit him. He's the best horse I've ever. Oh, is yeah. that right? You have never said that before. Um. As every trainer and jockey knows, there's, mm. there's, there are always these horses which I call the if only yeah. horses. Yeah. Um, he had tendon problems. And mm. um, we, when he won the Devonport Cup, Dad, we, we decided to have a Melbourne Cup campaign with him. Mm. And we brought him over to the Melbourne and he ran in the Ascot Vale, uh, which, which was the lead-up race back then. Mm. And he flying home, ran fifth which sort of caught the media attention then. And it was after that he damaged his tendon sheath. And uh, we retired him and stood him at Stoke. He had four foals and we brought him back and um, I won two more races on him. The Hobart Cup was good to you, Bev. You won it in 1986 uh, yeah. on Dark Intruder. Yes. Uh, the other cup winners were Jam City in 1996 and Les Beyond mm-hmm. in 1998. Uh, 29th of November 1986 is a date you won't forget in a hurry. (laughs) This was the occasion of your best one-day performance. You rode five winners at Mowbray, including Mm -hmm. your old mate ex-directory in the Craig Hansen Memorial, which was named after a jockey who'd lost his life in a racing accident and a jockey you greatly respected. You were pretty emotional about that win. Very emotional. Um... Craig Hansen was one of only two jockeys back when I won the premiership in 1981-82 and he was still talking to me at the end of the season. Mm. And um, he was a friend and colleague and a really, really good jockey. And um, I was there when he fell. I was in the race. I didn't know he'd fallen. And yeah, when, to win that race meant a lot to me. still mm. does. Yeah, of um, course. As many years later, I won it again um, in 1996, I think it was, on Ashard. Mm. I won it again. I was actually the last jockey left around who had actually known Craig. Mm. And his dad and I, Ken, we had, we had a hug after the race. We both cried. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, it did mean a lot. Yes. Bev, we'll pause briefly to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you after this. The Riverside Selling Auditorium will be buzzing on the 6th and 7th of April when the world-famous Inglis Easter Yearling Sale will capture the spotlight. 466 yearlings will be offered, including siblings to 161 stakes winners. The progeny of 169 stakes winning mares will go under the hammer, while the list of stallions represented over the two days will appease the hardest marker. Sentimentalists will pay particular attention to the final draft of the legendary Reduce Choice, who died at Arrowfield Stud in 2019. Speaking of Arrowfield, the famous stud tops the Vendor numbers with 49, ahead of Coolmore with 40, Widden with 28, Sedgenhoe 23 and Yarraman Park 22. Inglis Easter acquisitions in recent years include the Autumn Sun, Exceedance, Loving Gabby, Merchant Navy, Esther Jarb, Trapeze Artist, Russian Revolution and the Oaks winner, Personal. The countdown has begun 
for one of the world's greatest thoroughbred auctions, the 2021 Inglis Easter Sale. The 1987 Launceston Cup attracted some very hot Victorian competition. George Hanlon had a runner, Noble Tinjar. Jeff Murphy had a runner, Sylai, which had won the Hobart Cup. You rode a 20-to-1 pop called Brave Trespasser, trained by your dad, and you decided to ride him contrary to his normal racing style because you thought it was the only hope you had of upsetting him. Yeah. Um, he used to get back and um, in, his, in his races and, and I'd sweep round and I had to be a little bit closer. Dad and I talked about the race beforehand and Dad said, look, follow Michael Clark. Just follow him. When he goes, you go. And, and I did. And I, and I actually took off at the 800, swept round them, because he was a funny little horse, um, brave trespasser. Um, mm. he, he, was, he was actually quite silly on the track. He, um, he wouldn't relax at all. But in a race, he would do anything I wanted, luckily. Mm. And, uh, but he was strong as well. So he wasn't the type to go through gaps because he'd get checked quite easily. So mm. I had to go around them. And he also had a very, very long sprint. And I took off at the 800, and mm. he had, and that's how long his sprint was. And he ended up winning easily. Yeah. Yeah, three lengths, and, yeah, they beat all Melbourne horses. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember it well. Now, that cup win got Brave mm-hmm. Trespasser into the Caulfield Cup later in yes. the year, a famous mm-hmm. race in which no female jockey had ever participated. You won a race no. on him at Mooney Valley leading into mm-hmm. the Caulfield Cup yes. and the stage was set. It was a cold, miserable, <laughs> wet day. The track deteriorated race by race, which didn't suit yeah. your bloke, but it yeah. suited the horse that won it, Lord Reams, who was an absolute mm-hmm. swimmer. Oh, we, Even though we were an outsider and just a tatty horse, we knew our little horse. He was a good little galloper and it was... The track was rated good the day before, mm, yeah. <laughs> and it just started raining that morning. And we're driving, Dad and I are driving to Caulfield with our little horse in the horse float behind us. Mm. It's pouring, and uh, just, and we just uh, got, uh, we knew. It, he, he couldn't handle the work on the feet. Mm. He just did not handle the soft tracks. Anyway, he ran 10th, mm. which was good for him. <laughs> he couldn't go a yard in the wet. Oh, well, these things happen, don't they? Dad had taken four horses over for a few weeks to test the water in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. You won that one at Mooney Valley that I mentioned. You ran second in another one at Bendigo. And your father was then approached by the Ballarat Turf Club to consider an option on a property right next to the racecourse. He was keen, you were keen, but your mum, Joan, was horrified. (laughs) No, mum wasn't happy. No. So we were pretty settled in Tassie and yeah. But Dad and I I mean we wanted to make it in Victoria, you know, make it in the big smoke. Mm. Um so yeah, we all moved and naturally, naturally mum came along, um mm. moved to Ballarat. It wasn't a good time of the Australian economy to move though. It's, um mm. interest interest rates shot up to sixteen sixteen percent I think it was back then and mm. yeah, and, and it was tough. Um, so we were in Ballarat just for, for only a couple of years. Um, I, I did ride 
quite a few winners. I started getting a bit of respect off the trainers in the country and the bush. And, mm. and there was one time um, I got invited on the Burt Newton show. Oh, yes. Um, to have a chat. And, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and I was sort of put that on the spot while he was interviewing me because I knew he owned racehorses. And I said, hey, Bert, why don't you put me on one? Mm. And I think I, he was taken aback. He said, I'll have to do that. And uh, anyway, he did, and I rode predominate for him and won at Flemington. True to his and word. That, well, that horse true had to a female trainer, didn't it? Kath Johnson yes, was the trainer. That exactly. helped. Yeah. Oh, my word, it did. Mm. Um, yeah, so I won on at Flemington. We're on fourth on the next start. And then they sat me and put Harry on Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to complain about being sacked by um, to be replaced by Harry White, am I? No, no, he was 40 to 1, Bev, the day you won on yeah. him at Flemington, 40 mm-hmm. to 1. Yeah. Yes, yeah. He was, look, I was I was just lucky enough. He was raced well on the day. Yeah, I was just so lucky to win on him and to get the ride. It was a pity in a way the timing was probably not perfect when you received, just as you were getting a go on in Victoria... Uh-huh. You got a tempting offer to take part in a female jockey series in Japan. Uh-huh. Four yeah. local girls, two New Zealanders and two Aussies, yourself and Lynn Honan. You enjoyed yeah. it and you came home with a few bob too. Yes. <laughs> I wrote a couple of winners over there, which was wonderful. And, um, yeah, had a, they like to give presents over there. So I came home with a lot of presents, which was, which was really lovely. I I found the culture and 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 everything over there wonderful. It was great. It was a good experience. Mm. Back in Tassie, you were well on your way to a fourth premiership when you arrived at Elwick Racecourse on May thirtieth, nineteen ninety eight. It seemed mm-hmm. just another day at the office. Your yep. first ride was on a filly called Futel in the opening race. You jumped away. You dropped straight in behind the leader which slackened the pace suddenly. Mm-hmm. Your filly climbed onto its heels, blundered badly, and you were hurled yes. forward onto her neck. You tried to hang on, but you couldn't, and you were speared onto the track, taking the full impact between the shoulder blades. Your first thought was to roll out of the way, obviously, mm-hmm. but you couldn't yes. move, and in being mm-hmm. galloped on by another runner you sustained a 15-centimetre gash to the left thigh, which you were not even aware of. You were conscious, you were coherent, you could breathe, but you knew something was terribly wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's strange when things like that happen. Um, it, was a, it was just another thing. I mean, I've had falls and... The reason I went to roll out of the way is when I landed. The first thing a jockey does when when you get an experience with falls is you sort of look at the field behind you and I saw this horse coming towards me. Mm. My God, it's going to tread on my stomach. And that's why I went to roll and and I couldn't. Mm. And I wasn't far off. It trod on my thigh. So I was only a foot away from knowing that it was going to tread on me. Um, And then straight after, I mean, the the ambulance guys came up to me and they said, are you all right, Bev? I said, no, I'm not. I said, I can't move. I just got pins and needles in my fingers and my toes. Mm. And they knew, of course, straight away that there was something seriously wrong. Mm. Yeah, that 
to me, it was just a fall. Yeah. I, I, I didn't really comprehend um, how bad it was. I had no idea. No. Well, the first stop was the Royal Hobart Hospital mm-hmm. where the initial spinal X-ray and CAT scan were completed, revealing the shattering truth. A fracture mm. to the C3 and C5 vertebrae with three chips actually having broken off the fifth. But the problem, Bev, was the disc in between yes. the fifth and sixth vertebrae. That exactly. was the culprit. Mm. Yeah, they got um, squeezed into my spinal cord, um, which caused me to become a C5, C6 incomplete quadriplegic. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's bad times. Um, I'd, they operated immediately and got rid of the disc, but the problem is um, every part of the body can heal apart from the spinal cord. Mm. The spinal cord is like plasticine, and once it's been damaged, if there's a dent, it can't heal. Mm. And the, all the signals which went through that part are interrupted, and 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 they can get mixed up. And because of swelling, um, I lost everything. From I had no fingers, no triceps. All I had was um, shoulders. I could move my shoulders, mm. and nothing from below. And yeah, so that. That took a while. Um, it mentally, I didn't. I never really accepted it. No, um, there no. came a time when I got flown over to the Royal Alfred in Melbourne. No. Um, I, I don't know about a week or so after um, the fall, no. and where they did another operation on the back of my neck, and they put a brace in my neck, no. and and I got told, basically got told that. You're never going to walk again. Oh, You're not going to need a carer for the rest of your life. Mm. There, there were no ifs, buts, or maybes about it. I was never going to walk again. That's what my family and I were told. Um, I've, I've, I was on life support. This my lungs had collapsed. I'd been a heavy smoker, which didn't help. Mm. Um, and I think it was around about uh, six weeks after my initial fall when. I got a tiny little bit of movement in my toe and and in my thumb, mm. just a tiny, tiny little bit. And when we showed Dad and I, Dad was with me at the time, we showed the doctors, we were excited, and they basically played it down saying, yes, that can happen, but that doesn't mean you're going to walk. Just mm. face a life, you're never going to walk again. Mm. Um, back then, there was, there, were, there was no optimism of... Um, Pods or paras ever walking. Mm. There, there was, and I found the neg- negativity because I started getting more and more movement back over the next month. Mm. And I found the negativity um, very hard to put up with and cope with because mm. all they were teaching me in rehab was wheelchair skills. Mm. So my family and I made the decision to um, get me out of rehab three months early, and we hired my own private physio. Mm. And we're, and back back home in La Trobe yes, in Tasmania. Yeah, got yep. back home. Yes, went back home to Tasmania La Trobe and mm. hired a private physio. And mum found mum found a lovely physio, yeah. and she just told this physio just when she asked mum about me, she mum told the physio, "Bev thrives on being pushed. Mm. Uh, she thrives on saying, if you can do this." Yeah. Can you do this? And and that's what we did. And um, mm. it took me all in all eighteen months to 
um, start walking in um, mm. without aids. Yeah. Um, the the hard part about all of that was in my head during all of that recovery was I didn't tell anyone this, but in my head I was saying I'm going to write again. I'm going to prove all of you lot wrong. Mm, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't believe you. I'm writing again. Yeah. I want to prove you wrong. Mm. I want to prove the experts wrong. Um, unfortunately, there came a stage about eighteen months after when I plateaued. There was no more improvement to be had. Mm. I'd been trying to run <laughs> for about a month before oh, this. I, you know, I've been, I, I found that if I wore gum boots, it kept my ankle stiffer, and I was trying to run. And after day after day of many falls, mm. and, and I, I couldn't run. And I actually had faith that I was never going to ride again. That was when it really, really struck home, that my yeah, career yeah. was it was over. Yeah. Bev, we're coming up to 23 years since that fall at Elwick. Mm-hmm. What exactly is your mobility capacity today? Um, I'm independent, um, which is amazing. <laughs> I, I can walk. Um, I succumbed and bought myself a little three-wheeled mobility walker a couple of years ago because... Um, my balance isn't the best. Um, I can trip and fall. Um, with this little mobility walker, I found I can walk further. Um, I've also got a cane. Um, I, sh- I could be fitter. I should be fitter. Mm. Um, but it's hard. I mean, it, walking every step. I mean, I have to think about walking constantly. Mm. There's never – it's normal for me now that everything I do takes effort. There is mm. nothing – I do, which doesn't take effort. Just going sit from to a stand takes effort. Mm. I could, I know I should be in a wheelchair, and, and I'm so lucky that I'm not. But but there are people who think, no, oh, she's walking, she's okay. Well, I'm not okay. No, <laughs> I've no. got issues. Yeah. So yeah, it could be so much worse. But me being me, I wish it could be so much. Better. <laughs> yeah, of course. But yeah. that, that little girl you've got there, Tara, mm. as you said yes. early in the interview, keeps you grounded all the oh, time. Oh, yes. she, she she is wonderful. Um, I, I, I'll never forget when she was, this was after you saw me, John, when she was around about four or five, mm. I went into Benella with her and I was waiting at uh, the walk sign to walk across the road and Tara broke my hand. She said, hold my hand, Mummy. Across the road, oh, and she's been doing that ever since. Mm. Um, she'll, if we're out somewhere and if I'm walking, and she knows just from how I'm walking, if it's hard on me, and she'll grab my hand and help me walk. Mm. She does that now, and she's always done that. She's Tara knows me more, understands me more than what anyone ever has. Yeah. I think she's grown up with me. That's right. I'm just mum to her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was me being the jockey. This. Yeah. Oh. Yep. oh, yeah, you're a jockey, so what? <laughs> oh, yeah, she's obviously aware of the heights you reached yeah. by the same token. She knows yeah. Mum was a pretty famous jockey. Yeah, but kids being kids, that doesn't yeah. mean that much. I'm still just mum. <laughs> no. 14 or 15 months after the accident, you were paid a great honour and a great tribute when you were invited to be the subject of an episode of the famous television programme, this is your life. 
The show was recorded at the GTV9 studios in Melbourne and expertly hosted by Mike Munro. That was a night of great sentiment and great emotion for you. Yes, it was. It, it was amazing. Um, big shock. <laughs> that was yeah. that was fun on me. <laughs> um, it was a, a wonderful night. Um, saw so all my friends. You were there. <laughs> yes. Um, and and I also had a Christopher Reeve also sent a, a short video message, which meant so much. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Christopher Reeve, of course, was also diagnosed with incomplete quadriplegia following a horse accident in the United States and uh, apparently he was informed of people uh, in similar predicaments all around the world and you were one of the lucky ones to receive a letter signed by Superman himself. Yes. Yes, Christopher, I mean, his damage... He was a lot higher up than mine. He was a lot worse than what I was, mm. um, and and he he was he was so instrumental in trying to help spinal cord injured people all around the world. Mm. Um, to for him to have messaged me, I, I just felt very very privileged and lucky. Uh, yeah, that he did that. Beverly, there are very few jockeys or ex jockeys in the world very few sportsmen in the world who can boast a letter from Her Majesty and Superman. <laughs> That's quite yeah. a quinella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're spot on, John. I am lucky. You lost your dad in 2010 and yeah. your mum, Joan, moved to New South Wales soon after. She now lives mm-hmm. at beautiful Taree on the mid-north yes. coast. Is there a possibility that Mum will return to Tasmania with you and Tara? I'm working on that. <laughs> oh, I thought you might be. <laughs> Mum's got a lot of friends in Tassie. When when I, Tara and I went to Tassie just a few weeks ago, every, all my old friends, everybody was asking, how's Joan? You know, where is she and what's she up to? Is she going to be moving back? And, yeah, they, miss, they don't just miss me. They miss Mum too. I mean... Yeah, it's it's not it's not just me. It's my my family, and uh, mm. and I'd love I'd really love it if Mum would come over, but I don't know. Mm. That's up to her. <laughs> okay, you'll know in a week or two. Yes. Now, Bev, uh, another mention of your wonderful biography, "Beating the Odds," published by mm-hmm. Alan and Unwin in the year two thousand and three, yes. written by Murray Mottram in collaboration with you. And it tells the story of an English-born girl whose love of horses took her to the upper echelon of Australia's female jockeys in the days when prejudice was rampant. You must have been yes. very proud of that tribute. Yes, I'm very proud. Murray um, loved me. He, he did such a wonderful job to to capture me. All my friends said that the when they were reading the book, they said, it sounds like you're doing something. Murray really, really did a wonderful job. Um, unfortunately, he, he died. Um, mm. He uh, suffered depression and he committed suicide a few oh, years later. goodness me, yeah. I know. No one knew. No one knew. No. That he was going through a hard time. It's, it's, it's crazy how he just throws these curveballs. Well, uh, 
he couldn't have left behind a greater legacy of his work and his journalistic mm. ability than oh, the beautiful yes. biography on Bev Buckingham. Thank you, John. <laughs> Bev, I'm going to close with something I've said before, but it seems appropriate to use it again. I firmly believe that there should be serious thought given to the renaming of the famous ferry that runs between Melbourne and Devonport across the Bass Strait because that name should have been reserved for you in the first place. You are the true <laughs> spirit of Tasmania. I'm not the only sportsman from Tasmania. There's been a lot of good ones there. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be putting their hands up too, John. Bev, I've enjoyed every minute of our chat, long overdue and... I think it's something like 18 or 19 years since the last one. Yes. Great to catch been. up. Uh, I wish you every conceivable piece of good fortune uh, that can come along for you and Tara in the future. Thank you, John. And uh, I know that your return to Tasmania is going to have great therapeutic benefit for you. Yes, it will. Thank you. Look, it's been lovely chatting, John. I mean, this trip down memory lane... I it's been wonderful, and I thank you. <laughs> Beverly Buckingham on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. <laughs>